This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer, serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. And by Cape Fear Pharmacy, a local independent pharmacy providing health care and compounding services customized to meet our patients' needs. Visit CapeFearPharmacy.com today and let us take care of you. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Just as the Declaration of Independence had been drafted by a band of rebels in 1776, This small revision to their revolutionary statement, specifically naming women as equal to men, would serve as the backbone for another declaration, brought forth by a progressive group of women and a few men in 1848 at the Seneca Falls Convention in New York, the first women's rights convention ever organized in America. Primarily written by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, the Declaration of Sentiments, as it was called, was modeled after the Declaration of Independence and written at the dawn of a movement that demanded women have full equality in America, especially the right to vote. When Stanton's declaration was first read aloud at Seneca Falls, it drew gasps from the crowd hearing the words on which this country was founded be ever so slightly altered to include women was astonishing. But for Stanton and many women like her, they were adamant that just like men, this was their birthright. At that time, women had few rights of their own. They were essentially the property of their husbands, They had no legal claim to the children they bore or raised. They could not own property or hold office. Should a woman somehow make money outside of the home, she wasn't even entitled to it. Only men could discuss, vote, and ultimately decide what a woman did with her life, her family, and her body. But a growing sentiment in America in the years before and after the Civil War, sought to change that, although the desire for equality and the protest to obtain it would prove to be a long and winding road. It would take nearly a century, in fact. But a woman's right to vote would officially become the law of the land on August 18, 1920, when Tennessee became the 36th and final state needed to ratify the 19th Amendment to the Constitution. Instantly, 10 million new voters 
were now eligible to cast a ballot. August 18th, 2020 marks the 100th anniversary of that landmark and long overdue moment in American history, which today seems crazy that it even had to be a fight to make it happen. Women's suffrage was fought city by city and state by state, a movement that truly had a snowball effect, picking up supporters and enemies as it marched toward the 20th century. Like most paradigm shifts, the opposition drummed up along the way would prove to be a great hurdle. It came from both men and women who believed that if a woman sought more autonomy out in the world, her role as leader of the house and family would suffer. But as many of you can probably attest from knowing your own mothers, sisters, aunts, wives, daughters, and friends, women are rarely willing to back down from a fight. Dressed in white and proudly carrying their message of equality into their own communities with signs, pamphlets, and the power of their own voices, these women fought to change minds and deep-rooted ideologies about gendered roles, one person at a time. They were known for marching in parades, sometimes with an immaculately dressed woman gallantly marching out front on a white horse. They set up booths at fairs, posted signs on street posts, and some more prominently protested men's establishments and centers of government, where they had been denied a seat at the table. They filled the public viewing benches at legislative meetings, acting as living, unavoidable reminders of the suffrage issue that hung over the states for decades. They weren't a perfect movement, but they were committed to the relentless pursuit necessary to bring about social change. Some would call it the hardest chapter of their life. For others, like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, it was their life's work. Incredibly, the 80-plus year fight for women's suffrage would come down to just a few states as the window for ratification came to a close in 1920. At the finish line, it was North Carolina that put up one of the last barriers of resistance to the amendment as it took a stand on what many saw as a battle for the moral fate of the country. This is Cape Fear Unearthed, the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and landmark stories of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. This week on the show, we're going to honor the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment with a special discussion about the women's suffrage movement. 
Joining me this week to talk about the fight for women's suffrage is Jan Davidson, the historian for the Cape Fear Museum, who will help us understand the issues that fueled the movement locally and nationally. We will talk about what this movement looked like in the Cape Fear, why North Carolina played such a vital role in those final few months before the 19th Amendment was ratified, and what challenges women faced as they sought to obtain equality in the eyes of the government and their male counterparts, especially at the ballot box. 2020 has been a crazy year, but we didn't want to let the centennial anniversary of such a crucial moment in history pass us by without making sure that it had a place on the podcast. And frankly, a discussion about the importance of voter rights could not be more relevant in a presidential election year. So sit back and settle in for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed as we retrace the footsteps of the women's suffrage movement in North Carolina. Joining me now for this special discussion about women's suffrage is Jan Davidson, uh, the historian for the Cape Fear Museum. Jan, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Oh, you're welcome. It's always a good time. It absolutely is. And this is a really special episode because... Initially, you and I had some really big plans for this episode that were sidelined like so many things this year by COVID-19. This was actually, I think this is where we had landed. It was going to be our first live podcast episode where we're going to invite people in, come sit in the audience and hear us have the discussion we're about to have in person. Yeah. And that would have been fun. It would have been really interesting to see how that dynamic would have worked, especially for this topic, mm-hmm. because so much of it was discussed in public. So much of it was enacted, uh, you know, in, in speeches and in crowds and in front of audiences. And so it would have been an interesting thing. Unfortunately, the museum is closed where we were going to do it and gatherings are prohibited. So it is just you and I today. Yeah, I know. It's a, it's a shame. I think it would have been a lot of fun, but mm-hmm. I'm glad we get to talk about it. Anyway. Exactly. And that's, that's what I said at the beginning. I didn't want this to go by without including it on the show because this was a national movement, but like most national movements, it had local ties. It had local roots. It had local branches and leagues. And so... Uh, it's important to talk about it in the context of our area. Um, and so I want to start with looking at the movement itself. You know, one thing that drove the women's suffrage movement forward and backwards in many respects was those divergent ideas of womanhood and what roles women should play in society. And we're going to do more of a call and response, I guess. Um, I'm going to tell a little bit about why women were fighting for suffrage. And then you're going to tell me why men and women were opposing it and fought against it. And so I think if anyone paid even remotely close attention in their history class, um, or if they've ever come to the Cape for Museum or any museum, um, they probably can get a handle on what women were fighting for when it came for women's suffrage. Uh, In the 19th century, women had few rights. Uh, you know, they couldn't own property. They were, you know, I was, I was watching a documentary that really put into context that they were really the property of their husbands. Mm-hmm. And there was this idea before and after the Civil War to change that, to allow them to have more rights, a speaking voice, to go to college, to have professions, because they were even not allowed in most professions out in the working world. And there was this idea that 
women should have all of those rights of men, which seems so crazy today that you'd even have to fight for that, but that was the case. And the only way to really change all of those it came down to was to get the right to vote, to be able to vote on those issues. But women's suffrage was a much bigger topic. It was it was about gaining all these rights. It just happened to be that its leaders at the beginning uh, thought that the right to vote was where it should start. Um, is that kind of where you've seen it? Well, and in Seneca Falls, when they decide to do the Declaration of Sentiments about women's rights, the voting provision was mm-hmm. the most controversial. It was. So I think that there's this sense that this the ability to vote provides women with this public voice that in the 19th century, especially as work moves out of household settings and work, wage earning work becomes much more the province of men, mm-hmm. that there's this what historians have called the separation of spheres. So there's this notion that women's role is domestic and private and men's role is public and, you know, the public square. Yeah. So women wanting the vote becomes a challenge to mm-hmm. that. Absolutely. And and one thing that I, I've noticed as I was doing research over the past couple of weeks is a lot of women had different reasons for wanting this. Um, one that I thought was interesting that I wrote down was some women wanted the ability to vote for or against war because they were the ones left at home when the men went off to war to, to hold down the household, to raise children. And if, unfortunately, their husband died, then they were a widow. And so they wanted to say in those big overarching things that were going to be changing their lives potentially. And I, you know, you mentioned Seneca Falls. Uh, that was organized in part by Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who I imagine most of us know her name, at least hopefully. And I wrote down a, a passage. She gave a speech called The Solitude of Self in 1892. It was her final speech as president of the National Suffrage Organization. And she basically makes the case that no matter a person's gender, we go through life alone and we should be enfranchised with the skills and the rights to better our lives and be able to protect ourselves from the world. And she has this really interesting passage, and I wanted to read it because I thought that it encapsulates kind of, she was one of the the originators of the movement there mm-hmm. in Seneca Falls. And so this was how she saw the movement. This is what drove her. And this part of her speech is, The strongest reason we ask for women a voice in the government under which she lives, in the religion she is asked to believe, equality in social life where she is the chief factor, a place in the trades and professions where she may earn her bread, is because of her birthright to self-sovereignty. Because as an individual, she must rely on herself. No matter how much women prefer to lean, to be protected and supported, nor how much men desire to have them do so, they must make the voyage of life alone. And for safety in an emergency, they must know something of the laws of navigation. To guide our own craft, we must be captain, pilot, engineer, with chart and compass to stand at the wheel, to watch the winds and waves, and know where to take in the sail and to read the signs in a firmament over all. It matters not whether the solitary voyager is man or woman, Nature, having endowed them equally, leaves them to their own skill and judgment in the hour of danger, and if not equal to the occasion, alike they perish. Which I thought was a a really nice encapsulation at the end of her career at the head of this suffrage organization, that she was going back to what they really pushed at Seneca Falls, which was this was the birthright of 
any person. Yes. And I thought that that was a really nice encapsulation of why women were fighting for it. Um, yes. There's, so there's definitely a strand of the movement, the pro-suffrage movement, that is arguing that everybody has a natural right mm-hmm. to vote and a natural right to control their being. Mm-hmm. There's also a strand of the movement that likes to say that women are pure mm-hmm. and will bring a better and more wholesome vision to politics. Women aren't the one cre- uh, creating crime in the world. Right. So, so the, that kind of argument. So I think it's fascinating that the both the pro-suffrage side and the anti-suffrage side have two sets of arguments usually, and one of them's based in the idea that men and women are more or less the same, mm-hmm. and the other one is based in the idea of some essentializing different. And you can deploy both of those arguments on the two sides of the of the question. It's definitely one of the main anti-suffrage arguments is that letting women vote would deform the family and would like ruin gender roles and create, you know, it was against God and against nature, a different nature than the natural rights mm-hmm. that, that Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others were calling for. So, so what is the anti-movement? What was, what, was, what was pushing them against this progress that so many women were trying to fight for? Yeah, so it's fascinating. So I think there are, there are multiple strands in the conversations and arguments. One of them is, which we should, for in my historian brain, we should start with, is voting is not a right in this country for everybody during this time in any way, shape, or form. Um, Voting has always been limited. There are pushes towards expanding the franchise and then contracting it. So people were concerned in the 18th and 19th century about whether you were independent enough to vote. So one of the arguments is, is that your husband or your father votes and he votes for you. Essentially, your interests, the same idea that women don't have any separate legal standing, so why would they have any separate citizenship standing? He's your voice. Yes, he's your voice. You don't need it, honey. It's all fine, right? He'll take care of you. Exactly. So that is part of the conversation, but it's also, you know, a strand that you see for men. This affects males who don't own property and and other men who can't read. There are all kinds of different ways that we restrict the franchise. So that is one of the parts of the argument. So a liquor lobby that doesn't love that many of these women are are temperance advocates as well. Because they so, were very closely tied to yeah, the temperance movement. Yes, so the movement. Women's Christian Temperance Union and the, vo- uh, the suffragists are tied together. Mm-hmm. And that in part is because of the way that temperance works, which is in, in, a, in some senses not simply about against liquor, but it's against leaving women and children to the mercy of men who mm-hmm. drink. Yeah. And when you have no power outside of your family, you know, again, it's all a sort of intertwined argument. Um, North Carolina's textile mill owners did not want women to vote because they thought that women would vote for laws that would get rid of women workers and child labor. Uh, Not very lovely, very definitely true. Interesting stance Um, to take. (laughs) Sometimes Democrats and Republicans, there was no clear way that women would vote as a group. So that was both a pro thing and an anti thing. People were worried about what women would do. 
there were people who thought women were inherently weak and would be easily swayed. So again, that's another of the arguments. And then there's some interesting stuff about people like Victoria Woodhull, which I don't know if you know who she is. I don't. So she is a suffragist and um, she's also the, an advocate of free love, which in the 19th century does not mean what it would mean today. No. But it means serial, that you don't stay with somebody, a partner, if you're no longer in love with them. Okay. So it's a sort of a form of advocacy for serial monogamy, yeah. which was extremely um, radical for its era. So some people didn't like suffrage because of some of the people who liked it. So there are all these arguments that come together um, and create a movement against it. Plus, you know, truthfully, people with power don't like to give their power away to people without power. Yeah. So Especially in that time where men did see themselves as superior to women. Yeah. So I think there is this, like, sense that, you know, why would we give you a right? Mm-hmm. It's ours. Exactly. Now, initially, it faced a few setbacks. Obviously, the first one being the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard to bring the attention to the movement when all of the resources, all of everyone's attention was going towards the war. After the war, there was also this division of among those who were supportive of suffrage um, over the 15th Amendment. So what was the 15th Amendment and why did it cause that division? Because it really did. I mean, it, it yes. really drew some lines in the sand. So one of the reasons that I didn't mention earlier about why people were anti-suffrage, women's suffrage, was that the women suffragists and the abolitionists were very closely tied before the Civil War. And so if you wanted to maintain slavery, you weren't going to love those women. But after the Civil War, um, so there's 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. They're the Reconstruction Amendments. And the 14th Amendment introduces the word male into the Constitution for the first time and gives men some privilege And the 15th Amendment um, basically says you cannot discriminate against voters on the basis of race. And women, some of the suffragist women that you were talking about, Katie Stanton, um, Susan B. Anthony, wanted to include sex in that amendment as well. They fought really hard for it. There was a big fight over that. And um, African-American men said... uh, we need to do this first. And women said, we don't need to do, we we need to be included as well. There's a split in the movement at that point. Um, Some women suffragists said, yes, no, it's more important to get African-Americans to vote, African-American men. And some said no. And then there's also a fracture based on essentially racism, Mm -hmm. where educated white women start saying, I cannot believe you would give a vote to a non-educated, newly freed man over me, mm-hmm. which, you know, is kind of clearly racist to our ears. Yeah. They're deploying an elitist sense of themselves. Um, and that really sort of divided people as well. So we, so women's ability to get the vote sort of gets... Um, complicated by the 15th Amendment. And then in places like North Carolina, in the 1868 state constitution, it said every male person over 21, largest of religious belief, could vote. That's an expansion of the franchise, a big expansion of the franchise. It also says men. So instead of person, we've now, you know, 
made, we now have to change the state constitution to get women the right to vote in North Carolina. Just another hurdle. Yes. Um, but I think it's important to show that this movement was imperfect. Yes. You know, looking back at it now, it wasn't just the cause of suffrage. I mean, there were still motives. There was still racism. There were still all these things that fed into this movement and fractured it in a lot of ways because you see a lot of national organizations break out of that. Fifteenth um, Amendment. There's two national organizations that there's not. Yes. Yeah, and then they eventually have to come together. Yes, but they come back together in they, the 1890s. That I think probably stifles that movement a little bit because now you have two motives, two organizations fighting for the same thing, but with different ideals. And there are different tactics that are deployed by different organizations, and it's especially. I mean, it's very. Um, specific to the United States, right? There's the, do we go the federal amendment route or do we do a state-by-state strategy? And so post-Civil War, once the South has um, managed to get rid of having to be under Reconstruction, the white South, you know, they're very leery about anything that's a federal amendment. Um, Uh They don't, like, white Southerners do not love the 15th Amendment and are unhappy, and the 14th and the 13th, and are unhappy that they have to live under that. I'm shocked. So (laughs) (laughs) they don't want to then have another, you know, they don't want to have a federal amendment because it brings up this tyranny of the Uh federal government, right? Um, And voting rights have been state managed and state controlled for most of the of the country's history. So the 15th Amendment is a change yeah. when it says you cannot be denied the right to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Yeah. But it doesn't say you have to give people the right to vote. It's not a guarantee at the federal level exactly. of the rights of everybody to vote. Well, and I think we should say that there were a few states that did give women the right to vote. Um, they were in the western part of the state, yes. I mean the country, yes. um, but they they did they and I think one of them I think the first one was Wyoming and there I think there were four eventually and then more over time but I think that's interesting to see that this whole movement was facing such a, a pushback but there were states that saw the pros of this one um, I read that there was this idea that giving women the right to vote in Midwestern states was a way to get people to move out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that's an interesting, like, yeah. please come move here. We'll let you vote, yeah. um, which is an interesting kind of uh, selling point. Yeah, and there were various levels of enfranchising women before the 19th mm-hmm. Amendment. Some places let you vote in school elections because, you know, women are responsible for children, so they mm-hmm. should be able to. And if some places, I mean, New Jersey, you could vote there in the... 18th, early 18th century, I believe, or maybe 19th century, and then they lost the franchise. So the franchise isn't always a given either, which is the same thing that happened to free people, free men of color in North Carolina mm-hmm. who could vote um, in the early part of the 19th century and then lost that ability in the 1830s. Yep. So it's a fascinating topic to look at how how we who we incorporate into the voting body and not, and, you know, People over 18, you know, that amendment passed in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. So it ebbs and flows. Fighting in a war, but still not be able to vote. 
Yeah. Again, it goes back to being able to vote on things that would affect you. Yeah, exactly. Now, that does bring us to the state of North Carolina specifically. Mm -hmm. We get to the uh, 1900 suffrage amendment, um, which wasn't for women. Um, but rather, <laughs> no, and it wasn't for suffrage. It, it wasn't either. It was, um, it, it was an interesting extension of the Fifteenth Amendment, where it does bring that that voter right to the federal level. But then you see the states being able to make these amendments that really stifle specific voter rights. I mean, it's it's suppressing specifically African American men because of its restrictions. So, why is that? law or amendment here in North Carolina is so important? So the 1900 suffrage amendment, as you said, is not about giving people the right to vote. No. It's about taking the right to vote away. That name but is you misleading. you actually say, we want to change the law so African Americans are not allowed to vote mm -hmm. because you couldn't overturn the 15th amendment. But you could create a set of, set of laws that made it much harder to vote. So they passed a grandfather clause which said if you could vote in 1867, you can vote, um, which meant it was all white people. Yeah, because they, they didn't get it until 1868. The, yes. Yeah. Um, you, could pa you could pass a literacy clause, literacy clause, which meant you had to learn how to read and write, and you could be... Um, unfair in the way that you applied that clause. Mm -hmm. So the registrar had a lot of power and you could pass a poll tax. So the 1900 suffrage amendment for North Carolina not only restricted almost all of African-American men's right to vote, it also got rid of some white voters hmm. because they could no longer either, pay, either read or write or pay that poll tax. And it's important because it comes into play over our, uh, in arguments over women's suffrage. Some of the anti-suffragists in our state and in states in, in the South were white supremacists, mm -hmm. and they wanted to be sure the conversation didn't go back and reopen the door to talking about the 15th Amendment and that maybe there would be a federal way to make sure a federal response to the suppression of the black vote. I don't think we can really tell in our state how much of an influence this was, but the anti-suffragists definitely played really strongly on those, on those fears. Some Democrats in the, in, the, in the state said, we have nothing to worry about. There's this quote that said, there will be no greater proportion of Negro women voters than there are of Negro men voters. The same qualifications that apply to men will hold with the women, and there is no need to be greatly concerned about the problem of the Negro woman voter. And that is a coded reference to the white supremacy campaign of 1897 and 1898 and the way that, um, you know, the violence that happened in Wilmington then helped create a one-party state and disfranchise mm -hmm. African-American men. They're saying, we'll use all the same tactics on black women that we used on black men. Yeah, it's interesting to see race is so intricately tied into the the fight for w women's voting rights. I mean, yes. and because they were both disenfranchised groups, mm -hmm. and there was this idea on for some of them of we should get it before them. But then you see all these efforts to to suppress the vote, especially for African Americans and for women. And good lord, if you were an African American woman, I mean, it was it was a grim outlook in terms of being able to get this vote. Yeah, there's a really 
telling story about Ida B. Wells, who wanted to march in the 1913 Women's Suffrage March, and Alice Paul and the National Women's Party said to her, you guys can march, but you have to march at the back. And and she was having none of it, and she, she actually jumped out of the side of the crowd into the the march when the Chicago women went by and joined the <laughs> the, the march that way because she was, she was not a she's an anti-lynching advocate she was she was fierce yeah <laughs> she was not a woman who was going to put up with that but you know this the the women's suffrage movement the white women's suffrage movement the history of the United States is so affected by race mm-hmm. and how race relations play themselves out across uh, across time and mm-hmm. place and space. And especially in the South, there's no avoiding that that whiteness and white supremacy is a part of these stories. So let's move more specifically to North Carolina during this. Women's suffrage really took hold in the western part of the state first. Um, the formation of the North Carolina Equal Suffrage Association in 1894 but it didn't seem to take hold here in the in the in the coastal part of the state. Mm-hmm. Do we know why that was? Um, I think Glenda Gilmore, who wrote Gender and Jim Crow, implies that that this is about the fact that there are many many fewer African Americans in the western part of the state, mm-hmm. so that they are less concerned about some of these white supremacy issues yeah. and, and issues of of expanding the franchise to women and then expanding it in in to African Americans. Well, because then as as we know from the 1898 story, Wilmington becomes a predominantly African American city by the end of the century and so there would have been more black people here in, in town. Yeah, no, Wilmington is majority the New Hanover County is majority African American up to 1900 and has been for basically two centuries. Mm-hmm. It is a place where Um, especially after emancipation of African-American opportunity and power and African-American men in elected office. And so if you are afraid of um, expanding African-Americans' rights, then there would be people here who would be definitely afraid of that. And we see the the unfortunate fruits of that movement in 1898. Um, Well, one thing I want to talk about in the state level, you know, we we spoke about earlier you know, there was the federal amendment, but there was still this idea that maybe this could happen on a state level. Mm-hmm. And so there were attempts to change the state constitution to give women the right to vote. And one of those efforts, and I wrote this down because I didn't want to forget it because I thought it was fascinating, uh, was the first real attempt to pass legislation for women's suffrage in North Carolina was handed off to a committee that oversaw insane asylums. And it never moved out of that committee. I was reading about how the men who actually heard it were doing other things when they were being told or being read the actual amendment. Um, and it was because there was such a disinterest. And mm-hmm. that was such a a petty slight to say that handing it off to this particular committee that oversaw insane asylums would now have to deal with this woman's issue that these men clearly saw as just ridiculous. And I just think that's it gives an idea of where the larger social consciousness was about this issue, especially in North Carolina. In the 1890s? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that what we see especially is that until Jim Crow segregation gets put in in place, there's very little interest in the South mm-hmm. in 
in in women's suffrage and expanding women's suffrage. I don't think it's a coincidence that we don't really see a movement here until the 1910s, where we've had a decade of the 1900 suffrage amendment being in place in our state, and it's been you know, a chunk of time since there's been mass African-American male voting in the state. It opened up the door, ironically, for white women to be able to, to start making more vociferous claims to get suffrage. But even then, most women in our area were at pains to suggest or to state that they were not militant, that they were not connected to Alice Paul and some of the other tactics. I mean, Alice Paul's group was the first group that picketed the White House. So they were really radical and militant. Um, But North Carolina women and uh, women in our region especially seem to basically say we are we aren't like those women um we want the vote because you know we're respectable white women and we should have it not because we're advocates for for you know some crazy gender equality it's uh putting distance between you and and um the people picketing with signs and uh so what you know as we move into the 20th century what does the movement here in the state of North Carolina look like? Yeah, so the state movement comes to life in the 1910s. And we see it in the work of, there's a woman called Lillian Exum Clement, who is more radical. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's involved with the with Alice, the Alice Paul side of the movement. But more typical are Goldsboro's Gertrude Weil. There are African-American women suffragists like... Uh, the educator Charlotte Hawkins Brown. They work um, with the North Carolina Equal Suffrage Association to try and, um, you know, use tactics to get the vote and mm-hmm. to advocate for that vote in a in a in public spaces, but not in a um, direct action. They're not an in, in-your-face kind of. No, action. <laughs> I mean they tend to say things. Um, so one of the early women involved in the Equal Suffrage League was Archib- Mrs. Archibald Henderson. And they're always Mrs. whatever their yeah. husband's name are. And that's typical for conventions mm-hmm. of the time. But Barbara Bynum Henderson was a poet and a scholar and a college graduate. She was actually connected to the Dorset family from Wilmington. But she, when she's talking about the League, she was the first president in 1914 or at least the president in 1914, I don't know if she's the first, she was like, we're opposed as an organization as its members are as individuals to any form of militancy. So they're very, um, very much on the sweet side of of the movement. It's not like women were shedding these societal ideas of what role they should play. You know, they were still being referenced as their husband's wife um, under their name they were fighting for a bigger voice Mm -hmm. but it wasn't to get rid of everything and they still wanted to hold on to some of these these things that i think a lot of women today would think is antiquated Mm -hmm. you know and and but we're already into the 20th century and that's still something that they you know i just that's what i've learned as i was reading about this that this this movement was so multifaceted because you had women like Susan B. Anthony who never married. She didn't want to be married until she could be an equal to her husband. Mm -hmm. And she never got that because she died before Mm -hmm. um, women's suffrage became the law of the land. But then you also have women who 
still want to be their husband's wife, mm-hmm. but they also want to vote. Right. And so there's that spectrum of of interests that you really have to look at in this whole movement. But in North Carolina, didn't you mention that Gertrude Whale, she had connections locally? Yes. So she, her sister Janet, married Herbert Bledenthal, who's Arthur Bledenthal, who's the mm-hmm. first guy to die in World War One mm-hmm. in combat, is his brother. Yeah. And and um, Janet Bledenthal, Mr. Mrs. Herbert Bledenthal, <laughs> yes. went on to be a part of the League of Women mm-hmm. Voters. I haven't been able to find a story where I can say Janet was actually a member of the Equal Suffrage League here, mm-hmm. um, but there's definitely Gertrude is a powerhouse. She is up and down this state um, advocating for uh, women's rights. She, they pander somewhat to the racism of the day. Uh, she, she's not perfect by any means, but she goes on to really be an advocate for civil rights as well throughout her life. So she's, there's a biography of her that is just fantastic. And I think her outsider status as a Jew in the South is also a part of the kind of way that she views the world that helps her craft a message or or you know become a suffragist because she has she feels othered in more ways than just uh, you know feeling that sense that you're left out of the polity because you're a woman absolutely and she was based out of goldsboro yes yeah and and she is one of if you if you do some intense reading about women's suffrage in north carolina her name comes up a lot yes. because she was as you move into the 20th century she was a really big figure yeah she's um, the president of the state organization yeah. And, you know, we have our own organization here, um, the New Hanover Equal Suffrage League. It was founded in 1916. They spent about two years, from what I can tell, talking about whether they should found an organization (laughs) before that. It grew out of what our local women's club movement, um, North Carolina Cirrhosis, was founded here and was a women's group. And they met there. There were also a fair few of the women were members of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Which, when I first saw that, I was like, oh, that's kind of interesting. But um, there were UDC members on both sides of the debate, as far as I can tell. But a a lot of our local UDC women were also involved in the suffrage movement. Like I said earlier, there there wasn't much. You know, you see it come in 1916. Mm -hmm. That's three years before the fight is over, or at least the fight for that. And I think that's interesting that it took a lot longer for it to take hold here. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, I guess, movement here. There is mm-hmm. there is some real interest in it. And, I mean, do we know about the actions of, of the that group, the New Hanover group? I mean, we know we they met. Mm-hmm. Um, we know they disbanded during World War One, which is fairly common for the Carrie Chapman cat side of the movement Mm -hmm. to stop focusing on suffrage and start focusing on the war effort. They reconstitute themselves with pretty much the same leadership in order to become a ratification committee, Mm -hmm. which was advocating for the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which was passed through Congress and sent off to the states in 1919. And then we also know the same, a core of the same women went on to found the New Hanover County League of Women Voters in 1921. So the League of Women Voters is not a partisan organization. Mm -hmm. um, But we then know that some of these same women, or at least 
um, not, maybe not as many, went on to form in October 1920, the Women's Democratic League, hmm. which was set up here um, to encourage women to register to vote and to vote for the white supremacist Democratic Party. Hmm. Um, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing that, that I bring you joy. <laughs> it's interesting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a part of Wilmington's history, unfortunately. Um, but I think it's, that's important to note that the the League of Women Voters, which is still very active here mm-hmm. in the area, yeah, and it's not a conti- it's not in continuous operation from 1921 to now. I think that it faded out and came back. Yeah. But they, they did, and, and I even wrote a story uh, about, they did a, um, the League of Women Voters of the Lower Cape Fear did an exhibit about women's suffrage at the Latimer House mm-hmm. uh, that opened about 10 days before the Latimer House closed for COVID-19. Yes, and they have another COVID casualty was that they were going to march in the Azalea mm-hmm. Festival Parade mm-hmm. um, to kind of remind people about they women's were, suffrage. They were going to lead it. Um, and they had they had uh, linked up with the Girl Scouts of America mm-hmm. locally, and they were going to bring the next generation of voters, as, as they uh, said, to march with them. And, um, and unfortunately, that has uh, been sidelined, again, like so many things. Do we have any people locally who were notable suffragettes? Um, I don't think we have someone to the degree of Gertrude Whale, but I mean, do do we know of any who were prominently? Yeah, I featured? mean, I've like done did some research, as you know, I did a tour at Oakdale about women, and mm-hmm. and one of the things that I looked for was a suffragist here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we can we can talk about her in in a moment, and but I also. Wanted, I went, when we were decided we were going to do this, I started trying to find, are there any African-American suffragists yeah. from our region? So there's no way of knowing how many black women voted in North Carolina in 1920. The re- records don't exist. Some did because just uh, you couldn't discriminate on the basis of sex. So there's always a little, there's always people who are brave enough to try mm-hmm. to vote. Only 10 African-American women managed to get registered to vote of the 3,000 women in New Hanover County that registered. So they're nameless in our paper, and I, like, have thought quite a lot about the bravery that it took to do that. You had to go to what was usually a very male space. Some of the registration places were fire, fire stations, which were provinces of white men there was a stable where you registered mm. um there was a police the police station was one so the so as a black woman walking into one of those spaces mm. must have been really something and they so weren't the, safe harbors for no for and the fact and and in other places in around the state more black women managed to register to vote but like 600 african-american women tried to register in Asheville, and fewer than 75 succeeded so for that 10 there were likely hundreds maybe a hundred maybe more that tried to register to vote in new hanover county and that was when? This is in 1920. 1920. Right November 2nd, I think, was the, the November actual... November 2nd is the election. Yeah. You, can, you, can, you could register from September 30th to October 23rd. So they had this mass registration campaign. And when they first started, white registrars across the state didn't know what to do when black women came. Mm-hmm. By the end, they'd come up with a system where they divided whites and African-Americans into two separate lines, registered all the white people first, then spent lots of time quizzing 
black women and, and men, if they tried to register, about whether they were literate or not, and then turned everybody away when the, the day was over. So they used incredible stalling tactics. But we do know the story because of Glenda Gilmore's work about one woman, in who Anna Clemens, in Brunswick County, who tried to register to vote. And she actually wrote to the National Women's Party and said, do you think I could register um, to vote in absentee and would that work? And they said, I, we, don't, we don't know. But she was a nurse, property owner, a Christian, and she thought she should have access to the franchise. But apparently she noted and to she told the National Women's Party that her seven brothers and she tried to register in Southport. Um, they all went before a registrar on October 15th, and he refused, saying she could not read and write to suit him. And she wrote to the National Women's Party, all persons of colored origin in this whole county have been unable to suit the registrar. So even when Anna Clemens tried, she couldn't manage to register to vote. That that And that goes to something we're going to talk about in a little bit about how Right now, we are celebrating the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage, but the problems did not stop just because 36 states ratified it and it became part of the Constitution. Right. That was months after, and right. they were still facing those issues of racism, of sexism, of all of this stuff that were still working to keep women out of the ballot box. Mm -hmm. And in 1920, 40% of New Hanover County was African-American. Yeah. And that 40%, it didn't matter that the 15th Amendment was passed, and it didn't matter that the 19th Amendment mm -hmm. was passed. They were, they were mostly excluded from yeah. being having access to the franchise. And this town was still seeing the effects of 1898 yep. in terms of, of uh, intimidation tactics, in terms of just... As we've talked about in previous episodes of, of the United Dollars of the Confederacy being part of education, um, all kinds of things, just the government here was not going to facilitate any type of warm welcoming to not only women voters, but specifically African-American voters and women right. uh, of color. So I maybe somebody has records, but I have not been able to find records that speak to an organized black women's suffrage movement in New Hanover County. But these like little hints of between New Hanover and Brunswick um, show or let us think about the ways in which there were probably many, many African-American women who, all things being equal, which they obviously weren't, would have wanted to exercise that franchise from the get-go. So who was your uh, suffragette that you found that's buried at Oakdale? So Bessie Loder Wiggins, she was the head of New Hanover, the New Hanover Equal Suffrage League. Um, so she was a teacher before she was married. She was a mother by 1917. So she was doing suffrage work while she had a baby. Um, and she, like I said, like many of the others, was a member of the United Daughters of the Confederacy. She was the chair of the gratification committee, and after women got the right to vote, she was a member of the League of Women Voters. So she clearly had a strong interest in voting. She was widowed in the mid-30s, and her daughter died at the same time. Oh, wow. um, and then she actually lived till 1972, oh, wow. which by 1972, North Carolina in 1971 finally got around to yep. signing off on the 19th Amendment. Totally. Uh, only took him 50 years. Yeah, it totally didn't matter at that point. You know, way symbol symbolism, yeah, you know. Yeah. So, but Mrs. Wiggins, when she died, 
in her obituary, like so many women's obituaries, there's no reference to the fact that she was an advocate for suffrage and that she was a member of these organizations. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's because once the right to vote was obtained, especially for white women, it it just kind of faded in the background? And I mean, the, the fight happened, but now that you have that right they move on to other things? I mean, there were still so many hurdles for yeah, other people. that's a really good question. I think that women's obituaries um, shroud more than they shine a light on yeah. so many times. I can't tell you how many I've read that I've discovered something about the person um, and so much of it is missing. Yeah. And I think that it's... Um, it's a function of whether your fa- whether your family values what you did or even knows about it. So if who was left for for Bessie to tell her story yeah. when her husband had died and her daughter wasn't there to be told the stories yeah. of of her experiences. Some of the other women that I've looked at in the suffrage movement are women like Eloise Berkheimer. And when she was advocating for suffrage in the 1910s, she was a widowed mother of grown daughters. Here in Wilmington? Her, here in Wilmington. And they lived on Second Street. Her daughters, Bessie and Florence, worked for the railroad, and the family had three lodgers in their house. So they were basically Mrs. Mrs. Berkheimer was supporting herself through, you know, running a boarding house Mm -hmm. and had two daughters who were off age, but with no husband, there's nobody representing her by voting, right? So it makes sense to me that women in that kind of situation especially might think, I should have the right to vote. I'm educated and I'm also not being there's no man to vote for me in the way that like it was supposed to work so there are women who Mm. want who maybe advocate the vote because they want to have a say and they don't there's nobody to have that say for them even if they believe that yeah well and and she was she was married she I mean I guess her husband would have been her voice but now she's she's a widow Um, that's really interesting I've never thought about it from that point of view of when you lose that voice, the only voice that the government has given you, you know, why wouldn't you fight for this if you feel right, that's that, something that you that's can do? I think that's like when you quoted the Elizabeth Cady Stanton piece. I mean, that's what she's saying, right? It's mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, it's one of those cliches. We come into the world alone and we go out alone. Exactly. But like in between, it's like you cannot assume that somebody, that everybody's life is going to work the way that you think it should. Yeah. So what, what do we do to represent people who don't fit into that model? And someone's voice, someone else's voice is never going to accurately represent you Mm -hmm. um, as well as you can. So in a lot of speeches for women's suffrage, Mm -hmm. there is this thinking that a woman's right to vote is inevitable. The country is coming to that point eventually. It's been a long fight, but it is going to happen. Mm -hmm. They present what would become the 19th Amendment to every session of Congress for 45 years which I think is incredible. And sometimes it was read, sometimes it wasn't. Sometimes it was just kind of laughed off. But in 1919, it was brought before Congress and it was adopted. Unfortunately, then you face a whole other situation of it going to the states and having to be ratified. Mm -hmm. And at that time, there were only 48 states. Mm -hmm. So you needed three-fourths of Mm -hmm. those states, which would be 36 states. Mm -hmm. And so from 1919 to a deadline in 1920, they needed to get 36 states to ratify 
this con- this amendment to be added to the Constitution. This is where North Carolina comes in. Um, as I wrote down in our notes, um, I think many of us would believe that North Carolina ends up on the wrong side of history. Right. Because it really gets to a point where the last few days of this fight comes down to North Carolina potentially being the state that could bring this into the Constitution and be this hero and be the last state. But it doesn't. Um, and so what happens in those final days of, of August 1920? Ooh. A lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's fascinating. So I read a book about um, the Tennessee fight. Yes. And in sort of in prep for this. And the thing that struck me was how it almost didn't happen. Mm-hmm that it was really down to one vote in Tennessee. And there was like, there was so many machinations going on in the background, the governor, the head of the General Assembly or whatever they call it in Tennessee. It's just craziness. And in North Carolina too, I think there is this strong ambivalence. So both of our senators voted against the 19th Amendment. And the governor is being told by Woodrow Wilson you know, you guys should vote on this. And he, North Carolina's governor, does call a special session of the General Assembly to vote. And on August 17th, North Carolina's legislature, in a close vote, votes to postpone having the conversation. Um, They're also trying to lobby Tennessee to do the same thing, and then it would die, Mm -hmm. and then women wouldn't get the vote before the 1920 presidential election. Tennessee votes yes. Um, and anybody who doesn't hasn't read a book about it, I actually recommend that you read a book about it because it's some crazy politics going yeah. on. Um, and then the General Assembly in North Carolina votes against the amendment, um, symbolically says no. But there's no; it doesn't matter because it's already passed that yeah. 36 state. There's a fight about there's a fight to try and say that Tennessee didn't really vote for it um, and that they couldn't under Tennessee's. Uh, Constitution. The Secretary of State, Colby, signs the amendment uh, into law. It has to go back to him, that last ratification, on August 26th at 8 o'clock in the morning. The Washington Post, I think it was, might have been the other Washington paper, says he did it because he didn't in the morning so early because he didn't know, he didn't want to have the women who, who had worked for it, fighting amongst themselves about who get got the credit. <laughs> Lovely. Though what it really was, I think, um, from, from my reading, is that he wanted to sign it as quickly as possible because they knew that there was going to be an f- attempt in the courts to stop women's voting, mm-hmm. which there was. Um, there's a group called the American Constitutional League who tries to get the, the uh, courts to say that Tennessee's ratification was illegal. They fail. And um, it's pretty clear that women are going to get the right to vote. And once they get it that one time, I don't I don't know if the Constitutional League tried again and again or not. But it seemed like there was a sense in our local papers, at least, that it was pretty inevitable that women were going to vote and that we were just going to go ahead with it. North Carolina, where we kick the can down the road yes. for someone else to do it. Um, well, and that's interesting because in in Tennessee, uh, what I've read about that is that the women who were in the actual hall when it was being voted on, they didn't even know if they had the votes. They no. didn't know it until the last vote was cast right. and they knew that they had won that. And that's how close it was. 
those suffragettes didn't even know if they were going to be able to celebrate leaving that hall as the votes were being cast. Um, what are some of those politics for, you mentioned? They'd been there for weeks. Exactly. And they were exhausted. Yeah. And, and like Carrie Chapman Cat was just like, I, I, can't, I can't even. Yeah, so it's, there was a lot of lobbying by the anti-suffragists who mm-hmm. were connected to the liquor lobby. Um, yes, it's prohibition, but there was a room where, where is it? Jim Beam, Jack Daniels. It's one of, oh, the, yeah, yeah. It's one of the alcohols that, that's from Tennessee. And they had what, what the, the book that I read talked about the Jack Daniels room where they're basically <laughs> plying legislatures with drink and saying, you either don't show up or vote for us. Mm-hmm. Um, they tried to do the, um, the you know, they, they, they played the race card really hard. They tried to say that this was going to be, um, you know, terrible because it was, it was going to ruin white supremacy. The head of the Tennessee legislature, the man who's sort of in charge, um, he tried to do this, like, really complex maneuvering where he changed his vote to yes right at the end, even though he was anti-suffrage, because by saying yes, he could actually then have them do a say, let's have a recount. And so for three days, they all hung out in Tennessee, trying to see if they were going to reopen the debate again, which did not happen. And then the governor like sent that that signed thing off as quickly as possible. Yeah. But there was this just this this complicated and um, seemingly very corrupt story of um, how the, the amendment passes that's just mind-boggling. And then the final guy, the guy who votes, got a letter from his mother. I mean, and this is the, like, the story that gets usually told. Yeah, it's yeah. Just it's like his mom said, of course you're going to vote for suffrage. And so he did because he didn't want uh, to upset his mother. Mm-hmm. And that is part of the story. Yeah. But there's a lot of uh, there are there are yeah. all the other people who voted the, their whichever way they voted that happens before. And I I'm terrible at names and I cannot remember his name. You know, I listened uh, that documentary I watched. They mentioned him and I cannot remember his name either. But I, I think that you would get a lot of eye rolls and, and, and just outright probably disgust from people like Susan B. Anthony when you give the credit of the suffrage movement to one man at the very end. Yes, um, exactly. So, <laughs> yes, that is a story that is often told, but it, it was much bigger than that. And it, you're right. It's 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 it is a game of politics. But they were also fighting so that they could be part of that game in the future. I mean, they were seeing how much politics and how much having the power to vote could affect them and everyone around them Mm -hmm. firsthand. And this was a really good example of why they needed the right to vote so that they didn't have to sit in the rafters and not know what the vote was going to be because they didn't have a right to do it. And so I just think that's... It makes sense that there's such a a bitter fight to the end because Mm -hmm. this was 80 years of trying to get this done with a lot of snide comments, a lot of um, political maneuvering and sexism and everything that was at play, keeping them uh, from having the right to vote. Now, we did mention earlier um, North Carolina decided to be a real stick in the mud and waited 50 years before it symbolically ratified the 19th Amendment. Yes. Why? Do we know uh, why? I have no idea. <laughs> why 1971? It makes no sense. Well, so so I think it does make sense because in part the 60s really transform oh. gender relations yeah. and okay. we see some of the first women office holders 
or a wave of women office holders. We see the sex, uh, 1964 Civil Rights Act includes the word sex in the list of things you cannot discriminate against. So I do think that it kind of, it there's some sense of change. I don't know if it has anything to do with the ERA and mm-hmm. not wanting to pass that, So which also is its story in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be that the legislature said, well, we'll just pass this one and then maybe, I don't know. But I do think it, it's... It's pretty. I mean, why? Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, as I've it's read definitely it. Definitely worth research. It is. Why? Well, and I, it's I it's know. it's symbolic at that point. Yeah. You know, it women have had the right to vote for fifty years. Yeah, it makes no difference. Well, I mean, and then African American women. Yeah. You know, really since nineteen sixty five in large yeah. numbers. But yeah, it's interesting because you see, after all of that there is still challenges. What what challenges did women face? I mean, we've talked about it a little bit where they were turned away because they were deemed by one man that they weren't, their literacy wasn't satisfying yes. enough. I mean, did that happen to white women as well? Did it happen yes. to other people? Yes, well, so the people? immediate challenge of after is, is actually getting registered. So like I said, you registered between September 30th and October 23rd. Almost all the registration places, polling stations, were traditionally male spaces. So um, there's a big, um, or there's a conversation in the local papers about should we have a central registration place so that you don't have to go to um, an engine house or a livery stable. One man wrote to the paper and said, I hate that my wife and daughter have to go up into a foul-smelling horse stable and in addition have to climb up in the second story where registration and voting is done when the city has an auditorium which the election board can get free of cost. So I don't think it was pleasant. And there was a registrar in the third ward, and Mr. Blake, who apparently got in a fight with a woman who wanted to register, did not want to give her age, which you didn't have to give your exact age, but you did have to say you were over 21. They passed a ruling. The state attorney general said women don't have to tell the registrar how old they are (laughs) because that was one of these weird issues about Mm -hmm. women and age. It's part of the reflection of the sexism of the time. So he basically got in a fight with her about that she shouldn't be allowed to vote anyway. And there was apparently a number of men seated about around sneering at her while she had this fight. So she was really upset. So with 10 days left in the process, there were 350 women registered to vote in New Hanover County. And then the Women's Democratic League I was talking about forms. And basically, by the end of the registration, 3,000 women had been registered to vote. So there was clearly stuff going on in those early times that either women were indifferent or they were intimidated or they didn't understand how to do it or they had sexist men telling them that they shouldn't do it. Um, So there were clearly barriers to that first push to get um, registered. And some of those tactics that they used about, um, you know, making sure that you're literate or making it, putting them in places that aren't great for a specific person um, or a class of people or things that, that, you know, are historically and unfortunately contemporaneously used to minimize the voting rights of certain people. You have to remember that it was men who had to implement the thing that they, many of them had fought against. Yes. Um, 
they were the ones, you know, women were just getting the right to vote. And so there was no women in power to help make sure that it was done justly. Um, It was men who could use whatever tactics they they needed to to satisfy themselves, I guess. Well, and like I said already, um, and this is, I know, the, the beat that keeps going is, is uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was actually entitled An Act to Enforce the 15th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution because it had been so long in the breach. Mm-hmm. And that then basically says you can't use a literacy test or hinder or block citizens from voting, and that the Attorney General of the United States could take corrective action, supervise compliance, and suspend the use of tests and devices. So it's really not until 1965 that an enforcement mechanism and the government says everybody gets the right to vote over 21. Over 21. Um, It doesn't, you know, we're looking, again, we're looking back 100 years now, but it doesn't just... The issues don't end. No. For women, for people of color, you know, they were so closely intertwined. Obviously, we know one of us here is a woman. (laughs) (laughs) But I think we all know that gender inequality is still very much a thing. And so the right to vote was absolutely a a landmark moment. It opened up a lot of doors. Mm -hmm. There's still so much work to be done. Um, You know, you think of pay equality, you know, Mm -hmm. all of that. But here, when you know, since this is a, a hyper-local podcast, what do we think the Cape Fear and North Carolina's legacy is when it comes to the women's suffrage movement? Did we do enough? Did we not? You know, what, what, where, did, where do you think we stand when it comes to, to this story 100 years later? I mean, I think we're incredibly typical of the South in mm-hmm. the sense that Um, This was not an active campaign in the antebellum. It was was challenged by issues of race at every turn. I think, you know, I appreciate the women who worked here too to get the 19th Amendment passed. I admire the women uh, unnamed and Anna Clemens who worked so hard to try and exercise their right to vote as black women knowing that they weren't going to get it yeah um you know I think that standing up even when you're gonna fail for a for equality and for your rights is like an incredibly um, inspiring and empowering thing to do. Um, but the vote is one small piece, and I think that what we see in the rest of the 20th century is, okay, so you got the vote, but you also have issues that in at the time you had the vote, if you were a woman and you married a man who was not a citizen of the United States, you lost your citizenship. Mm. So you lost your right to vote. Um, you had you had to petition to get it back. They had to change the rules. There's still issues about divorce, um, access to contraception, and control the issues of controlling your own body as a woman are you know things that continue to speak to our society and cause us to um, you know protest and advocate. So yeah, it's a really important moment, and it's. It's a little sad that North Carolina didn't vote for the 19th Amendment, Um, but it's 
not surprising. Yeah. Do you think it's North Carolina's kind of crossed a bear that, you know, we had a chance to be that final push and and it didn't happen? I think it says a lot about the state's history mm-hmm. and our and I think that it reinforces what studying this place does um which sounds weird but the issues that come up in women the women's suffrage campaign issues about um equality um between men and women issues about racism and its role in our society and the legacies of white supremacy slavery 1898 they're all inextricably linked to understanding our place and this time yeah. even 2020 mm-hmm. and so looking at women's suffrage if you only look at it as a celebration then you're missing so much but if you just dismiss that it's it's not important at all then you're also missing a yeah. lot it's a step on the road mm-hmm. hopefully the arc of justice is the arc is still going towards justice <laughs> yes. you know but we know from our history that voting rights can be expanded and contracted changed um you know the fight over felon voting rights right now in the country is in a way a version of the fight for women's right to vote mm-hmm. a version of the fight for african americans right to vote who are we saying is valuable in our society and who are we saying is a is a you know fully fledged citizen it all comes down to uh, how we view everyone around us. Um, and at the time of, of the 80 years that it took to get women the right to vote, they were battling against the perception of what a woman could do mm-hmm. and what a woman should do. And that then gets replicated for race, for all kinds of things. And um, it for just... Age, for age. For age, yeah. Are you, are you capable of voting at 18 or are you should you really be like subsumed under the under your family head Mm -hmm. i mean it's the same kind of conversation that happens well jan we just had this conversation with a lot less people than we were originally going to (laughs) but i still think it was such a valuable one to have because the stories of elizabeth katie stanton and susan b anthony they get told but as we just discussed this movement is so much more complex and has implications for so many more things that came before it and after it and this is this is absolutely a milestone to celebrate at 100 years now, but it is still a continuing story. And again, I don't have to tell you that as a woman, um, <laughs> uh, which is why, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I know you had done research and I took your Oakdale tour and we talked about Bessie um, mm-hmm. on your tour. And it just sparked my curiosity about what this movement that was such a, a hallmark of the early 20th century, what it looked like locally and what it looked like at a state level. Because again, as we mentioned at the beginning, this was a movement that was fought in public, but it was fought in communities because Mm -hmm. you had to change minds locally before you could change the entire country. And I think you could apply that sentiment to a lot of things, Mm -hmm. but one of them thankfully was women's suffrage. So Jan, thank you so much for being here. Oh, thank you so much for coming over. Yeah, absolutely. We are at the Cape Fear Museum. (laughs) So we are are where we would have had this talk, but But again, it's just us. It's just us. Uh, Hopefully we have people who are listening to us doing this, but uh, Jan, um, please come back soon. (laughs) 
that's it for this special episode of Cape Fear Unearthed on the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage. Thank you so much for joining me. Check back soon for our next episode when we'll turn to another chapter in our local history book. But until then, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode, and I share all of my coverage of local history for the Star News. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. And if you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I include links to all of our new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research. All delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for that newsletter at starnewsonline.com newsletters. As always, you can find a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com and on Twitter, at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast was made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you get the show so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, Get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth.